Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, author of Eyes on the Right for Substack. Our special guest this week is A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics and a favorite of Beg to Differ. Welcome one and all. Let us begin. First topic, the primary results from Tuesday. It was quite a week. So I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. We had some good news from Tuesday. Let's hold off on the implications of Kansas's vote, but just speaking about the candidates rather than issues. So we had some good news. Eric Greitens was soundly defeated, but I think that may have exhausted the good news. What do you think were the big takeaways? The big takeaway is that Donald Trump is still there and, uh, He may have lost a little weight, but now he's still the 700-pound gorilla in the bar. And uh, a lot of candidates that he backed did very well, actually won. Perhaps the most notable was the result of the Arizona Republican gubernatorial primary, where the Trump-backed candidate who has no particular political experience and was largely unknown before he glommed onto her, actually seems to have pulled out a narrow victory. And that in combination with the results of the uh, Secretary of State primary, where an outright election denier won handsomely, suggests that Arizona now promises to be ground zero for procedural challenges to the outcome of the 2024 presidential election, that is, assuming Mr. Trump runs. One of the candidates, Pete Mayer, uh, who uh, courageously voted to impeach him in the House of Representatives, went down to defeat. It was a narrow defeat, but still, given his name recognition, the prominence of his family was an unpleasant surprise. So although there was some good news, and you have already noted, Mona, the most significant part of it, I would say that uh, the most strategically placed Trump-backed nominees by and large succeeded. And I don't think that's good news for anybody and certainly not for 2024. Linda, some of the Trumpy candidates who have succeeded in this year's primaries have done so with the backing of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, specifically John Gibbs that uh, Bill was just referring to, who defeated Peter Meyer. Democrats gave Gibbs more than Trump gave him. In fact, more than he raised, period, for his whole effort. So, Democrats have been getting a lot of scolding about this from editorial boards and from pundits, but they seem to think that the bargain was worth it. What's your analysis? Well, the scolding is all well and good, but how about some heads roll? I mean, if members of Congress really were outraged that they were pouring in out of their funds um, more than $400,000 into Mr. Gibbs' campaign, maybe they ought to get to the bottom of it and Fire the people who made that decision. How about that? If they don't do that, what my fear is, is that it makes a mockery of the January 6th hearings. It makes a mockery of the claim by people like us who say that January 6th was a terrible threat to democracy and that election deniers are striking at the very heart of what it means to be a democratic nation. And so I am absolutely appalled at this. And I think that it is too clever by half for the Democrats to have done this. You know, Mr. Gibbs could end up winning the election. And uh, so could and so will many of the other election deniers that the DCCC has endorsed. So I just think this is really bad for democracy. I think the idea of trying to bolster. Now, 
just people who are challenging someone that you don't want to see win the primary, but supporting people who are a real threat to our nation. And that, I think, is unforgivable. And if I were a Democrat, which I'm not, if I gave money to the D for the C, which I don't, I tell you, I'd never do it again. Yeah. So just to be clear, when you're saying it was too clever by half, the Democrats gamble here is that if they support the Trumpiest possible Republican in the primary, that their shot at winning the seat in the general is improved. And your worry and that of lots of people is, yeah, but what if they win? Okay. So Damon, the whole slate of Republican victors in the state of Arizona is like a horror show. You've got Carrie Lake, the winner at the gubernatorial level. Donald Trump praised her because he said she speaks constantly about the stolen election. That's her big theme. So he loves her. Blake Masters, who's the nominee to run for Senate, supports the Great Replacement Theory and favors a nationwide personhood law, uh, fetal personhood law. And then to top it all off, for Secretary of State, no less, we have a nominee called John Fincham, who's a member of the Oath Keepers. Take it away, Damon. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you you kind of you you, uh, you used all my punchlines there. Oh, sorry, I mean, no, sorry. no, no, that's okay. It's it's uh, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. I yeah. mean, I don't know enough about Arizona politics to quite understand why it is that Arizona the Arizona GOP is kind of become the craziest in the country. I mean, we saw that through the whole crazy saga of the two months between the November 2020 election and then the riot insurrection on January 6th, that it seemed like the claims coming out of Arizona, the demands for recounts, the rejection of slates of electors, the calls to do all of those things were loudest seemingly from there. I mean, they were also coming- Yeah, exactly. And like there were days where like masses of people were gathering outside the actual buildings where accounts were taking place as if the idea was to intimidate the people inside. And then even after January 6th, long after Biden had become president, there were still the recounts and the new recounts and calls for yet more recounts. And then some of the people like Fincham were running for office claiming that you know, all we need is transparency. In other words, more recounts, but we've already had them. There's nothing to find. So again, I don't quite grasp why Arizona, as opposed to any of these other places. I mean, this stuff is big in a lot of states. It's big in Michigan. It's big in my home state, lamentably, of Pennsylvania. It's there in Georgia, but, you know, we saw in May that the elections there have pushed back on that somewhat. So it seems to not be as intense there. But Arizona, yeah, rising right to the top here. And I know that the idea that the secretary of the state could be in this camp is itself very scary. If all of the events line up in just the wrong way in 2024, that could be really bad. But for my money, the Blake Masters campaign is something to watch very, very closely along with J.D. Vance going into the fall. Both of these fellows are Peter Thiel protégés. They both come out of the Silicon Valley hedge fund world of investing in high-tech companies, lots of disruption talk sort of combining far extreme libertarian views with also kind of pro-authoritarian views in a way that I think a lot of more mainstream Republicans don't quite understand how this even makes coherent ideological sense. And it doesn't really, unless your point is to simply disrupt and say incoherent things, all of which seem to be aimed at impugning the kind of broad liberal center of the political system. Yeah. Can you pause on that for just a second, Damon? Because I know you pay close attention to things that go on on the right side of the spectrum, but just amplify that for another minute. I mean, the whole idea that libertarians would be glomming on to authoritarianism 
at first blush, doesn't that seem to be an absolute oxymoron? Well, it does, but there are a couple dimensions to it. One is if you know the history of the right in the United States over the last hundred years, you know that the old right, sort of before the Cold War, and Bill Buckley's influence was libertarian and also was very hostile to democracy. So as you've seen the kind of Trumpian surge of paleoconservative ideas surging back into the mainstream, probably for the first time ever, actually, because it's not as if the old right paleocons were really mainstream back then. So there is that tradition among libertarians. It got superseded decades later by more kind of pure libertarians who are in favor of individual liberty on all dimensions. And like Reason Magazine is a pretty good example of an outfit that tries to be consistent that way. And that stream of libertarian thinking had a big influence on the GOP through the Reagan era and beyond. But it seems to be waning now. And what you're seeing now is this older, I think, ideologically confused, but perhaps sadly politically potent combination of libertarianism combined with sort of being in favor of a strong man if the strong man will defend the liberty of me and my friends, which for someone like Peter Thiel, who's a billionaire, could involve just making sure that billionaires can do what they want. And if that means that other people with fewer resources uh, have less freedom, then that doesn't really bother them all that much. So it's a complicated, long story. Uh, but the last thing I'll say, the last dimension to this, apart from the libertarian story, is this idea of disruption. The idea that if you're Peter Thiel and you just hate the status quo, the way you go about that isn't necessarily by consistently offering an alternative. It's you say a little bit of everything just to mix it all up. So maybe you support libertarians. Maybe you support people who uh, talk about like Masters does about having a personhood amendment to ban abortion everywhere for the entire nine months of pregnancy. And then you might also support, you know, something like Compact Magazine, which is a kind of, you know, red-brown uh, sort of fascist-slash-communist journal where you kind of combine the religious right with Marxist writers. Like, none of this makes any sense unless your goal is to disrupt the kind of coherent liberal center of American politics in favor of anything else. It's yeah. sort of like, destroy that, get rid of the establishment, and then we can have free reign, and then we'll decide what we're going to do. And in that disorder, people like Peter Thiel will never suffer. Exactly, exactly. Will. He wants yeah. freedom of movement for himself and people like him, very powerful, strong finance types who uh, want to have their way with the country. Yeah. Okay. We also should mention that another good person who was punished on Tuesday is Rusty Bowers, the Arizona House Speaker. He lost his race because he spoke out about the Constitution and refusing Trump's efforts to get him to betray it. A.B., let's turn to the other big part of the story from Tuesday, which is this huge turnout, apparently the biggest ever in a primary in Kansas, about this proposed amendment to the Constitution regarding abortion. Kind of a shocker, right? I was not expecting it. I thought it would be an interesting indicator for Democrats if they saw a surge in turnout, but I did not think the thing would fail mm. in Kansas. So I was completely shocked. Let me just set it up a little bit because the Republicans were the ones who put this on the ballot and they chose to do it in the summer in a primary because in Kansas a pretty conservative state, maybe not quite as conservative as people thought. But anyway, they, the, the uh, turnout for Republicans is usually much larger than for Democrats because they're usually more racist at issue for Republicans. Anyway, so they set it up so that it would benefit them and they uh, were shocked. <laughs> it was shocking. And I think in the postmortem that we're seeing, and I commend you know Charlie's newsletter to everyone today because he really goes through what the language and the messaging was and includes a bunch of ads that the pro-choice activists deployed. And it was really smart, pragmatic language 
that appealed across the political spectrum on uh, things like personal freedom and government mandates. It was not abortion on demand, uh, women's bodily autonomy. It was really language that accommodated how a huge majority of Americans feel about abortion, which is uncomfortable and largely supportive in the first trimester. So they not only registered new voters, but they drew out voters to this sleepy summer primary to vote against this in droves through a very shrewd campaign. It doesn't mean, I should say, that this means that voters are going to come out all over the country, including in red states, to vote for Democrats in the midterms. This was directly on the ballot, and many people likely registered to vote and voted for the first time or perhaps in a very long time and maybe just only voted for this. And so things like a direct ballot question in November in Michigan, that is likely to see the same kind of energy. But it doesn't mean that Congressman Snodgrass is going to get your vote because he's a Democrat, because this is like a sleeping giant has awoken even in Trump country. But it's really shocking for Republicans. It means they have really underestimated how energizing this issue is and that they'll really have to be careful in every race with every candidate watching the Democratic advertising, new registrants, all of this kind of energy building that the Democrats are working so hard on. Because if it can be done in Kansas, it obviously can be done in most places. I was amazed at the political smarts that the pro-choice side showed here, A.B. I mean, instead of sort of moving to the extremes, they crafted a message that could appeal across ideological barriers, and they succeeded. I mean, Steve Kornacki of NBC, I think, estimated about 20% of the votes, the pro-choice vote on Tuesday were from Republicans, and uh, probably some number of independents, too, who were voting in the primaries, although their closed primaries, but they may have registered for that purpose. So it shows the importance of pitching a message to the broad middle because this issue, the Supreme Court only threw it back to the people, you know, a few weeks ago, and both sides have an opportunity to appeal to the broad middle. For this round, the Democrats succeeded in seizing that middle ground. So Bill Galston, you wanted to make a comment? Well, Just two very quickly. First of all, the question is whether this turns out to be what I'll call the Yunkin moment for Democrats, where in Virginia, a conservative figured out how to pitch a conservative message to the broad middle. And the Democrats did the same thing in Kansas. Will they learn from this experience? That's Mm -hmm. the fundamental question. If they do, as I've been arguing for some time, it could have a substantial impact on the 2022 midterms. If they don't, it will be business as usual. Second, a factoid that may be a straw in the wind. In the weeks after the Supreme Court decision, between that decision and the vote, 70% of the new registrants in Kansas were women. I wonder what they were thinking about. (laughs) Yeah. Third point, various maps have shown a very sizable number of counties in Kansas who went strongly for Trump in 2020 and who turned around and went strongly against the ballot initiative. This is a state that Trump carried by 15 percentage points. The Democrats only got 41. The no to the ballot initiative forces got 59. That tells you something. Yeah. Uh, Linda, I'm going to come to you next. I just want to mention that among the messages that the pro-choice side put out were some that stressed that Kansas already has limitations on abortion, including a um, ban after 20 weeks or 22 weeks, depending on how you interpret it, parental consent for minors, a 24-hour waiting period, and a ban on sex selection abortions. So what they were arguing is, we're already in the sweet spot. We don't need to change anything. That's right. But I'd just like to go back to something that A.B. said. And I actually do agree with her that there is no indication that this vote means that come November, 
those who are pro-choice are going to automatically end up registering and voting and making this the top voting issue. However, to the degree that Democratic candidates can paint their Republican opponents as total extremists on this issue, I think it will help them. And we see a perfect example of somebody who's been doing that in Georgia. Stacey Abram, who's uh, running against Brian Kemp, has run ads. And basically, those ads are totally focused on Brian Kemp's position on abortion and his opposition to making abortion available for people who are not in the most extreme circumstances of having their life being risked on it. So I do think that that may be a strategy that will work. It will have to be selective. And I think everything you've said, Mama, is absolutely correct, that to the degree that Democrats blow it by trying to make this a referendum on abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy, they will lose. But to the degree that they can point to Republicans and particularly incumbents who have made abortion front and center in their own campaigns, in their own governing, I think it may, in fact, turn around some of those suburban Republican women. And without them, those incumbent Republicans can't stay in office. Thank you. A.B., one other quick point that I think we should just touch on before we leave the politics here, or at least this part of it. And that is that among the members of Congress who voted to impeach, two survived their primaries this week. That is Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse. Why? Because they run in Washington state, which has an open primary system. And these results do stress how much power our primary system gives to extremists. It's evident in both parties, but it's much more of a problem right now in the Republican Party. Do you agree with me that this is an example of why we should be looking at reforming the way primaries are run and look very aggressively at open primaries and final five voting or final four voting, that kind of thing? Absolutely. And for those of us who've been (laughs) screaming about this for years, it really is a silver lining this year that we have proof of concept that this is working and that these Republicans cater to independents and Democrats and people across the spectrum in their districts, and they didn't have to be in a one-on-one death match with, uh, with a Trump candidate, which is the case in a lot of these primaries where it's just a closed Republican primary and the MAGA candidate consolidates their support and it becomes, this is what happened obviously in Arizona and a lot of these places where Trump has gotten his pick. So we're going to see this on August 16th in Alaska. We're going to see uh, Lisa Murkowski in an open primary, and then four contestants will go to the general election for final four voting. Alaska is a laboratory for this process, which is an open primary paired with ranked choice voting, and it's called final four, or sometimes it's final five, in which the candidates running are running from every party, and then the top finishers proceed out of an open primary to a ranked choice general election and are literally running, speaking directly to the voters the entire time about what they want to do for them. The candidates don't run against each other. They're not burning down bridges and relationships and basically running tribal campaigns about how evil the other party is. They're just trying to stand out to voters who are looking to pick and rank them among their favorite candidates. So you are always appealing to the supporters of the people you're running against, hoping to be their second choice. It's, I believe, the way to bring this all back around to a competition that speaks to a majority of voters and sends productive and constructive people to Washington. So I'm really hoping it gets a lot of notice from voters nationwide in 2022 and, you know, so that a thousand flowers can bloom and we see more of these reforms thrive elsewhere. Well said. People ask, how can we improve the tone of our politics and how can we get better people involved in politics? And the answer is you have to change the incentives. You can't just hope for better people. But if you change the incentives, uh, you know, you, you have a shot as, as, these, uh, as these results that we're seeing demonstrate. Okay, let us now turn to another topic. 
The president's political fortunes are improving a little bit. We have had gas prices declining for 50 straight days. Ayman al-Zawahiri has met his reward, courtesy of the CIA. And uh, there have been a number of um, legislative wins for the president, for the Democrats. But Joe Biden will be 80 in just about three months' time. And most people seem to feel that he is too old. And so we now turn to the question of, if not Biden, who? (laughs) And is it even possible to have another nominee? And so I'll start with you, Damon. But before you answer the question as to whether it's possible for anybody else to win the nomination or win the presidency address either one of those. But the last Democratic vice president to become president was Lyndon Johnson. And before that, Harry Truman. And before that, John Tyler. And here's a fun fact. The only Democratic vice president before Biden who got into office without the death of the president he was serving under The only one in American history, unless I get this wrong, is Martin Van Buren. (laughs) Well, you know, I say back to the Van Buren era for (laughs) America. But that's an interesting, I I had never really thought about it in those terms. And it really does seem to imply that if Kamala Harris wants to be president, she has to hope that Joe Biden (laughs) dies in office, I guess. And then she could maybe... You know, then she can win because she'll be the incumbent. It's a way of skipping the transition. Of course, all of these historical examples are flawed because it is a very, very small sample. But I did think it was kind of fun. It is. And many other people think that Kamala Harris, at least so far, does not look like a very strong contender. I would be extremely nervous with her going in to a contest against, say, uh, Ron DeSantis. I think that could be, that has a a high likelihood of not going very well. And, you know, uh, your general question, you know, could someone else do it? Well, I don't know. First of all, we, I mean, there are a number of known unknowns here. First of all, is Biden going to step aside? Now, I think it's entirely possible that he will announce after the midterms that he's not going to seek re-election. It would be, I think, politically ill-advised for him to make such an announcement now. So all of his statements to the contrary, that of course he's going to run, are exactly what you would expect him to be saying now. You know, you automatically become a lame duck once you announce that. And so you obviously want to announce it as late as possible. But that, of course, has to be balanced against the need for the party to figure out what the heck it's going to do. So that means the sweet spot will be the few months following the midterms. Then we have the Harris issue that she will be presumed to be the nominee. She will have been lining up support in the party. She has very strong support among African-Americans, and that's, of course, an extremely important constituency within the Democratic Party. And so I think it's very different in all kinds of ways, but there is a kind of analogy that can be drawn to the difficulty of the Republicans trying to unseat Trump as the presumptive nominee, that you can't easily imagine a scenario on either side in which some group of opponents get together and take a headlong run at the presumptive nominee and dethrone the person. So just as I have a hard time imagining anyone, including DeSantis, actually coming at Trump and overthrowing him in the leadership to be the nominee if he chooses to run. Similarly, I, I, and even more so, I can't really imagine any other Democrat saying, you know what, I'm not going to accept that Kamala Harris is the nominee. I'm going to be the nominee instead, because you would all automatically antagonize the factions in the party who support her. So it could be a bloody mess. I mean, I really don't know what happens. 
if Biden doesn't run, it's probably going to be Harris as the nominee unless she really tanks in the early primaries. In other words, the voters say, meh, you know what? Nah, not very good. And I don't really think there's not a lot of uh, history to back up that scenario unfolding either. I think it's more likely that as in 2016, you sort of get this feeling of like, well, it's going to be Hillary Clinton. So she's kind of the person to beat. I think we're going to end up in a similar dynamic and it probably will end up being Harris with all of the white knuckling that might entail following that. Okay. AB, I'm tempted to ask you, so are the Democrats screwed? But let me put it this way. <laughs> Let's go back a step because I think you're of the opinion that Biden absolutely positively is not going to run again. Can you talk about that? Right. So I wrote about three weeks ago that I do not believe that Biden's going to run again, and he cannot for several reasons. It's his age, it's his approval ratings, and it's his son. They're about to go through a very brutal year where there's likely going to be a Republican majority in the House investigating Hunter Biden for probably two years in multiple committees. They're likely to impeach the president as well. And my counsel to him, though he, I'm sure he will not take it, is to announce before he's impeached kind of early this winter and to remain neutral in the primary and wish everyone luck in a new generation of leadership and say he will back the nominee with everything he has, but it's time to turn the page on both Trump and Biden and for him to not back Harris. Recall that in 2020, he almost took a four-year pledge, a one-term pledge, and his advisors talked him out of it because they know that you don't run for president at age 82 and finish your term at 86. And they knew this term would age him and it has, and he's tired. And so I just believe it's absolutely not happening. The question as Damon was describing is whether or not you just back Harris because you're afraid of how divided the party is and it is very divided. Or do you say it's an open contest and may the best man or woman win which I think would be the best thing for the party and the best thing for the country. And if he stays neutral, it really is an opportunity to have a big open contest, one that lasts a long time if he does it early enough, if he doesn't dither. He is afraid that Harris won't win, which is why I think he's going to take too long to announce this. But I would just add that Black voters don't necessarily want Black candidates. They want a winner, which is why they backed Biden in 2020, because they believed he was the best person to win, even though he was the oldest white man who'd been in government too long of all of them. And I would also note that Kamala Harris has no constituency. The progressives will freak out and say, how dare you go after a Black woman, our first vice president ever, but she doesn't actually have a constituency in the party. And she was a terrible candidate with no political instincts in 2019 and 2020. So if Biden does not bless her, I think she could be toast. Bill Galston. So if AB is right, and there is a long race kind of drawn out for the Democratic nomination, arguably, if Kamala Harris runs the same kind of campaign that she ran in 2020, in 2019, rather, she won't prosper in that environment. She's not a good candidate. And so there would be time for African-American voters and everybody else in the Democratic Party to say, no, I think we're going to find someone else. First of all, and here I guess I disagree with Damon's prediction. If Biden announces that he's going to stand down and not run for re-election, I think the chances that it would be Harris's victory in a kind of a coronation is extremely unlikely. And by the way, in case anybody has forgotten, Barack Obama very conspicuously refrained from endorsing his loyal and pretty effective two-term vice president as the next Democratic presidential nominee, as a matter of fact, quietly made it clear to Biden that was not going to happen. Yep. So... Although there wasn't the racial dynamic there. There wasn't the racial dynamic, but you know what? There's no guarantee that Harris would be the only African-American candidate in the race. Right. Right. And so if Biden stands down, I think the most likely outcome would be a quite open, protracted, and interesting presidential primary 
contest. And uh, I have no prediction as to who would prevail in that contest, but I wouldn't put a lot of money on Kamala Harris. So, Linda, is it possible for a president who is not seeking a second term to boost somebody else in any way that he thinks would be good for the party in the country? Presumably, Biden feels very strong. We've heard he feels extremely strongly about the threat that Trump continues to pose. So in light of that, is there a way for him to elevate, I don't know, Mitch Landrieu, who you know is a sort of centrist Democrat, Amy Klobuchar, Roy Cooper, current governor of North Carolina, any of those? I mean, is there any way for him to do that? Well, I'm not sure that he can do it outwardly, but I have a couple of other people that I'd like to see boosted, one of whom we've okay. seen a lot of this last week, and he is the governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir. Now, you know, I've never heard him have any ambitions to be president of the United States, but he seems to me to have handled the crises in his state so well. And I happen to believe that somebody who has been a governor of a state is far better equipped to be president of the United States, that, that the role of being an executive is very different than the role of being in the legislature. And I'd like to see a governor. The other person who's not a governor, but is, I think, very interesting, but he has to win his Senate race first, is Tim Ryan from Ohio. And of course, he ran last time around, didn't do very well, but he certainly has a much more moderate face. I mean, the last thing that the Democrats need is to have either a far left candidate like Gavin Newsom or somebody like Vice President Harris be at the top of the ticket facing Donald Trump, because I think what would end up happening is Donald Trump would win. And I think that would be an absolute disaster for our country. And by the way, I'm so surprised at how we never seem to think of Kamala Harris as biracial. She was raised by her India-born mother, didn't have a whole lot of connection to her father, although her mother did, in fact, try to steep her daughter in her Black heritage. And I know she went to Howard and all of that. But I just find it very interesting that we seem to think that all Blacks identify Kamala Harris as one of them and would support her because they're Black or because they take some special pride in that. It's not at all clear to me. And I think you're absolutely right that Blacks tend to support candidates that they think support their issues and can win. And Kamala Harris, her ineptness in 2020 or 2019, because she pulled out before 2020, I think, it's unforgivable in my view. And I say that, as I've said many times on this show, as someone who thought she might be a shining star. Yeah, um, the the whole identity thing is is interesting. I mean, especially the way um, people. I mean, everybody in American life now seems to think that it's you know front and center. The most important thing about you is how you identify racially and sexually, and you know whatever gender. I mean, as if those are the only categories that matter. And and then of course politicians, you know. Kamala Harris has stressed her blackness um, rather than her Indianness, and uh, Barack Obama stressed his blackness rather than his whiteness. And um, you know, it's, it's although not it, some of this is not initially. I mean, it was very interesting when he was coming up. It was you know he talked a lot about being biracial in his. That's true. His That's true. Um, uh, but you're right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, okay. So A B. What's your view about all of this legislative progress that Biden can claim lately? Um, frankly, in his first two years as president, he's actually gotten a fair amount done legislatively, but it doesn't seem to be helping him. What's your sense of the whole mansion deal and all of it? Well, what's so interesting is that Biden initially ran as, you know, as someone who was going to work with Republicans and he had hoped that they would sit at the table and stay at the table and cooperate on legislation and he would get the most out of the Senate as he could. He ended up with a Senate majority, which I don't think he expected when Trump sabotaged the Georgia runoffs. Alas, they were in the quote majority with a 50-50 Senate, which is not a majority at all. And the idea that they have passed all of this bipartisan legislation is really stunning. 
Do I think it helps the Democrats with their base? No, the base is still heartbroken over Build Back Better and not having passed voting rights, police reform, and, and of course, a steeper social welfare agenda. But the idea that he, with a 50-50 Senate, could pass all of these things that matter, you know, potentially uh, codifying same-sex marriage and an updated uh, Electoral Count Act, but the CHIPS bill, the most meaningful gun reform in 30 years, and bipartisan infrastructure, it does speak to the middle of the electorate that might be angry with Biden over 40-year inflation, but has to look around and say, wow, it might not be because of him, but it's happening in spite of him. And this didn't happen under Trump. I mean, this is really... For you know, for the paralysis in Congress that many of us understand, this is pretty amazing in in a fifty fifty Senate. And so, I think that it's again, it's not going to energize the base. And of course, Biden is not bragging about all this bipartisanship because of the base and all of their disappointment. But I think it's sort of this late surge that shows um, a lot of productivity and uh, coherence and competence that I think you know, is is going to speak to some people in the middle that are reevaluating how radical the Republicans are deciding how they're going to vote this fall. On the mansion reconciliation bill, I'll just quickly add that will be a partisan vote. If they get a prescription drug benefit through, the climate provisions will speak to the base. They're not great. It's not what they wanted. It's never enough, but it will be something. But a prescription drug reform will be is very, very popular across the board in all parties. And that should not be overlooked. Yeah. And also the Obamacare subsidy expansion, that too. I mean, when the Republicans tried to repeal Obamacare, they did not succeed. They like to blame it on on, uh, John McCain. But in point of fact, their voters didn't want them to repeal it, which was the real story there. No, it's amazing to think, isn't it, that we could go from an environment in which the Congress is doing real things, leaving aside whether one agrees with all of it or not, attacking real problems, and then pivoting, as you said, A.B., to with a presumed Republican majority next to Congress to, you know, investigating Hunter Biden and impeaching Joe Biden for what? I mean, you know, it's just uh, really disheartening. All right. Let us now come to our highlights and lowlights of the week. And let's start with Linda Chavez this week. Well, we talked a lot about this on last week's show, but I'm going to highlight a piece that appeared in the Unpopulist, which is a subscription newsletter. By the way, it's one that's free that is on Substack. And it is by our friend Walter Olson, who's been on this show before, and it's entitled The January 6th Committee's Findings Have Met the Appropriately High Bar for Prosecuting Trump. And Wally Olson, who is one of my favorites, comes out of a kind of libertarian background and was, I think, initially quite worried about what it would mean for us to prosecute Trump, has now decided that not prosecuting Trump would set such a bad message to the likes of Donald Trump and those who would follow in his path, and that the deck is now stacked in favor of prosecuting him. So I will uh, give him a thumbs up on that piece. Excellent. Wally Olson, always worth reading. And I will just mention The Unpopulist is edited by Shika Dalnia, and it's also highly, highly recommended. Bill Galston. I have a highlight and a low light. My highlight is that there is gathering bipartisan support in the Senate for the Electoral Count Reform Act, which may be the single most important piece of legislation bearing on 2024 that has any chance of passage in the Congress, either this Congress or certainly the next. And I hope very much that the Republican Party in the Senate will endorse it or that many Republican senators will back it. And I hope that Democrats in the House who are trying to weigh down the effort with other electoral reforms that they know can't pass the Senate will stand down and get this bill done while there's time to do it. It is absolutely critical. Here's my low light. On July 23rd of this year, the leader of Hungary, Viktor Orban, gave the most nakedly racist and anti-immigrant speech that 
I think has been delivered in Europe in a very long time. One week later, Donald Trump met with Mr. Orban when he came to this country and congratulated him on his political success and had absolutely nothing to say about this grotesque speech. This week, Mr. Orban will be the featured speaker at CPAC, which previously decided last year that it would be a wonderful thing to hold a meeting in Budapest. And I think that if conservative populists don't find a way of disassociating themselves from Mr. Orban and do it quickly, they're going to be tarred with his brush. Thank you. A.B. Stoddard. I want to start by saying that I have never watched Jon Stewart's show. I've seen clips of him doing interviews. I can tell he's very talented. I've laughed several times, but I was really moved by his advocacy for veterans, which he's been at for many, 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 many years, as we've known, for the passage of the PACT Act that addresses healthcare needs for very sick veterans um, who have been exposed to toxic chemicals in burn pits um, at military installations around the world, like President Biden's son, Bo, who died of geoblastoma. I really hope that there are other powerful people with big platforms like Jon Stewart who can learn by his example and use them for good. With all the gloom and doom and dystopian danger that we talk about Mm -hmm. in our conversations, it was really positive to see an American taking time and energy out of their lives all these years and sticking with it till the bitter end in such an emotional and powerful way. And as I said, I, I really hope that he inspires others to do the same. Well said. Um, also, A.B., I can't resist just mentioning to you and seeing your reaction. I mean, the way the Republican senators handled this has to be the most maladroit you know, <laughs> thing I've seen in a very, very long time, uh, comments. <laughs> I, I just was amazed also that Toomey, Pat Toomey's like a serious guy or formerly a serious guy. And he went on Jake Tapper on CNN and called Jon Stewart a pseudo celebrity. And then he did it again. It was oh. intentional. He did it again on the Senate floor. And of course there was the video of them all fist bumping and everything. And you just think, you know, we, we know those of us who pay attention to the functions of Congress understand how these things work. And there are, you know, Poison pills come onto bills and you fight them and it's unpopular and sometimes the voters don't understand. This is the Mm -hmm. one issue you would think (laughs) they could send an all-team note around and say, we're not going to let ourselves fall into this trap and look like total monsters. But they did. Yeah, they did. So I was talking about this with Charlie Sykes on our podcast that we do for Bulwark Plus uh, subscribers and uh, members. And I said, boy, you know, the Republicans really stepped on a rake. And Charlie said, no. The Republicans in the Senate went into the garage, pulled the rake out of the tool shed, placed the rake on the grass, and then stepped on it. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Damon Linker. I'm going to point actually to two highlights about lowlights. These are a pair of pieces that are appearing or have in just the last few days this week in the New York Times, both substantial essays that helped me to understand some things going on around us. The first is a a very good uh, essay titled The Violent Fantasies of Blake Masters. We talked about uh, Mr. Masters earlier in the podcast. He won his primary this week in Arizona and will be uh, running for the Senate in uh, the next three months and is funded by Peter Thiel. Uh, This is a very good, thoughtful uh, attempt to make sense of where he's coming from intellectually, what he would like to achieve, and where it fits into the ongoing evolution of the anti-liberal right. Uh, The author of this piece is Sam Adler-Bell who uh, is one half of a very good podcast called Know Your Enemy. Uh, He definitely writes from the left, but he's very smart and very fair-minded, I think, in his judgments and is uh, definitely someone worth reading and thinking with regularly, and this piece is very, very good. Also in the New York Times, appearing, I believe, in uh, the New York Times magazine that's coming out this coming weekend, 
There's a piece titled How the Claremont Institute Became a Nerve Center for the American Right. Now, we've all read many pieces about the Claremont Institute by now, so the general subject is not necessarily that new, but this piece is a long, deep dive by a very good journalist named Elizabeth Zorowski, who wrote a very good piece for the New York Times Magazine several months ago about the subject of uh, Bill's low light, namely the confluence between the American populist right and Viktor Orban. And this is her latest piece. It's very long, deep, again, as I said, a deep dive into the Claremont Institute. It appears that most of the principal players allowed themselves to be interviewed by her, which I think testifies to the fact that they considered her earlier piece on Hungary and other figures on the right to be fair. And she does a very good, fair-minded job with this. And to her credit and a testament to the subject matter that the people involved end up coming off looking pretty bad anyway. So I recommend both of these pieces to listeners who want to learn more about these unwholesome subjects. Thank you. All right. I want to mention it's both a highlight and a low light. So it is a low light in the sense that Alex Jones succeeds in America. Alex Jones is one of the most loathsome human beings currently living and breathing. Just the most recent example of how awful he is, is that the people who he has already been found guilty of defaming, that is the grieving parents of children who were murdered Sandy Hook Elementary School, have won a defamation case against him. And when they were testifying, he didn't bother to be in the room, in the, in the courtroom, but he watched it through the streaming service and he commented on his radio program or TV, whatever it is, that the father seemed to be on the autistic spectrum and what's wrong with these guys and so on. So continuing his horrible conduct. Okay. So the low light is this man in 2018, was earning $800,000 a day, okay, peddling this kind of horror and lies and so on and so forth, destroying our civic life. So great. It was, uh, you know, isn't, is this a great country or what, that a man like that can be earning that kind of money in that way, not the money, but in that way. But here's the highlight. Jones's lawyers accidentally turned over to the plaintiff's lawyers two years worth of data from Jones's personal cell phone, where it included emails and text messages, all kinds of things that prove that he has committed perjury, or at least go a long way toward showing that he committed perjury. And so it is kind of condign punishment he is now made extremely uncomfortable on the stand in front of the judge and the jury with the plaintiff's lawyer saying, you know, you said that you could not find any emails regarding Sandy Hook on your phone. Are you aware that your lawyers accidentally gave us all of your text messages and it's right there? And Jones was reduced to saying, oh, well, I guess you have your Perry Mason moment, which indeed they did. So <laughs> hooray. That was a good moment. And I hope this man is reduced to poverty, which is what he deserves. With that, I want to thank everyone who participated today. I want to thank A.B. Stoddard. Always great to have you, A.B. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong, and all of our listeners. Anything you can do to promote this kind of civil conversation? If you think it's important for the country, please tell your friends, write reviews, and so forth. And we will return next week as every week.